the knowledge sessions. Hello and welcome to this podcast from RCVS Knowledge, where our mission is to advance the quality of veterinary care for the benefit of animals, the public and society. I'm Lara Kareem and our subject today is improvement and not disapproval, the role of quality improvement in veterinary regulation. And what better person to discuss this with than Lizzie Lockett, Chief Executive Officer of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons, known to many as the RCVS. As well as being CEO, Lizzie is also Director of the Mind Matters Initiative, which aims to make a difference to the mental health and well-being of members of the veterinary team. Lizzie has been involved with the RCVS for almost 15 years. She headed up the college's communications for over a decade before moving into the Chief Executive seat in 2017. Lizzie, thanks very much for joining us today. Could we start with a definition? What does the term quality improvement, or QI as many people call it, mean to you? Well, really, for me, it's around, um, it's a process, really, around trying to identify areas for improvement and then really going through a structured process around the implementation of change, so measuring outcomes, reviewing, and then trying again. So it's a continual um, continual cycle. But I think for it to work, you need to have some real clarity about what you're trying to achieve, to know where you're starting from. And often that starting point is recognising that something it has not gone as well as it could have done. And and hence the, the, the wording in the title of the talk, really, um, the, the podcast, which is around um, improvement rather than disapproval and it's that recognition that if something goes wrong it's not a moment for everybody to give disapproving looks and tut tut but to recognise that this is an opportunity to make things better and I think quality improvement as a, as a process the QI process puts a bit of structure and objectivity around that that quickly takes it away from being somebody's fault and makes it a, an opportunity to, to improve things. Um, but we talk about the process, and I think that's part of the definition, but more importantly than that, the secret to success is having the energy and the resources and the will to accept that things can always improve, um, that it's not a bad thing to say that things can be better. Um, and even if things were good, you know, we're, we're Rolls-Royce today, they can be outdated tomorrow. Um, so QI is ensures that you're alive to the opportunity to change and that the environment in which you operate is also constantly changing. And it's something that we're trying to build into um, the work that we're doing with with new graduates, for example, at the moment, trying to get them to understand the importance of dealing with uncertainty and and, and capturing that. Um, And just finally, kind of in terms of a definition, often I think quality improvement is set against the idea of innovation, two things being separate, so mm. one being about novelty and one being about improving the way things are. Um, but I don't think it's quite so simple as yeah. that. Um, I think actually, I agree it's not about innovation per se or novelty for the sake of it, but actually embracing change and improving your everyday um, is around being innovative in your thought process at the very least. And in fact, if you don't keep changing, you're often moving backwards. I mean, I've heard it said that, that the status quo can itself be regression if you don't keep moving. So for me, in rather a roundabout way, that's kind of the ingredients, I guess, of quality improvement. Well, that's really helpful. And I thought it was really interesting to hear you um, talk about your work with new graduates. And I imagine that uh, if you build in at that early stage this sense that quality improvement is is part of, of your armoury um, in terms of ensuring your, your best practice and, and collaboration amongst the team, which we can come on to in a little while, then you're setting yourself up for um, robustness and maintaining that in the future. Yeah, I mean, it's something that... So we've been carrying out a project called Graduate Outcomes, which um, was born really out of the Vet Futures project that we've been doing jointly with the British Veterinary Association. And it recognised the fact that for quite a lot of graduates, they didn't feel that the veterinary degree 
really set them up for the job that they needed to be done. Um, and we've also had discussions with employers who feel that, you know, um, the environment is ch- changing and is challenging. Um, so it's a big review, probably the biggest review of veterinary education we've had for some time. But one of the things that we found that was interesting was that when we asked people what more needed to be put into the um, the undergraduate degree, it wasn't a list of technical skills. It was around behaviours and knowledge and culture. So dealing with innovation, dealing with uncertainty, having um, robust approaches when things go wrong were actually some of the real core ingredients. And I think it reflects um, through to the kind of quality improvement culture. But even before that, I think it's about recognising that we're not all perfect and things will go wrong. And you need a way either personally or structurally through the workplace to kind of help identify that. Um, So, for example, one of the things that we've been working with the Association of Veterinary Students on through our Mind Matters Mental Health and Wellbeing Project is um, what they call Failure Fridays, where they get senior lecturers in in the vet schools to talk to their students about examples in their own lives when things went wrong and how they dealt with that, which is a kind of a precursor to then having that more structured approach to working out what went wrong and what you can do about it. I think that's really interesting to hear, um, in particular the relevance to mental health, um, because it seems that there are probably several additional benefits to, to adopting QI, apart from helping to ensure compliance with standards. Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I, I totally agree, and I think it's something that um, I've been exploring through the work we've done with my matters for the last five years or so. And also, I mean, you know, accepting personally, it's one of my own failings, which is this idea of having a closed, fixed mindset as opposed to a growth mindset. And a closed, fixed mindset means that if something goes wrong, you take that as a personal criticism of yourself and your identity. And, you know, it's really hard to move on from that, particularly if you're used to being a high achiever, as many veterinary students and and veterinary surgeons and nurses are. Um, Whereas if you take more of a a growth mindset approach, that means that when something goes wrong, you have a, a kind of a professional curiosity about how you can improve. You think about objectively what led to that that error or that mistake and how you can work either on your own or with others to improve that. And it unlocks, it's actually quite liberating, it unlocks parts of your brain to think about problem solving Mm -hmm. rather than always being kind of self um, judgmental, I suppose, about mistakes that happen. Um, and I think it feeds into a broader conversation about what it's like to be a regulated professional. Um, mm-hmm. And that I think it's easy for regulated professionals to think they have to be perfect, they have to always be on, they have to have the answer to everything. Um, and, and I can see why that happens because we're living in a society where people are increasingly demanding of people who, who um, support them with, with services and, and professional services. But um, actually a much broader way of looking at it is to say that I owe it to myself and my professional, my team, to continue to learn and develop. Um, And that's actually a really positive way of looking at it. Um, And it feeds into our regulatory process as well because it means if things go wrong in practice and they're talked about and tackled earlier, it's much less likely to develop into something that um, comes to us as a complaint, really. So I think that there's positives from a, um, a mental health and wellbeing point of view. I think there's also positives... Um, business positives Um, you know let's face facts if things happen better if there's improved animal health and welfare that that will lead to improved outcomes for for patients and clients probably improved staff retention as well so when you start to think about it in the round um, if the if the opposite is not improving and actually getting worse um, then it becomes a bit of a no-brainer really in Mm -hmm. terms of a process and then the challenge is okay we all accept we need to do this but it's finding the time the resources and kind of knowing where to start and I think as well as across the profession, there's the uh, factor in terms of, uh, we're not talking solely about individuals, 
but that QI across a veterinary team can be very powerful and probably needs uh, a certain amount of buy-in, if not in totality, from across the team to be uh, to be effective. Would you say? I, I agree. I, I do agree. Um, and I think actually it's also worth worth pointing out that we we've been talking about the clinical team here, and we mm. often talk about clinical outcomes. But this isn't just about clinical outcomes. And veterinary surgeons and veterinary nurses work in all sorts of environments where they're delivering excellent um, contributions to animal health and public health. Actually, um, so it's not just a clinical a clinical thing. Um, but yes, back to your original question. I think. I think for this and for other culture change type projects, and um, this is one that ends up with quite a concrete set of outcomes, if you like, but the mandate needs to come from senior people within the business. So they need to create a space to say, it's okay for us to do this. Culturally, it's okay. We will commit the time and the resources. Um, and we will allow you to develop your thoughts. But then the actual ideas really need to come from people on the ground. The people who see the work can see physically what might need to change. They can see the interaction with the clients. They can see what might need to change from a, an animal health and a, a welfare and a, an outcomes basis. So often you have this kind of mirroring of... of input really where people at the top are saying yep go for it we will support you and people at the bottom are saying well actually here's my idea and this is what I'd like to change um, and you see this in other other sectors as well I think um, and so the leadership the everyday leadership comes from sometimes surprising places in the organization and we see this too with people who are um, reaching towards their practice standards accreditation um, often the people in the business who get tasked with that are the people who are much closer to the day-to-day mm-hmm. not necessarily the more senior people in the business and for them it becomes a really rewarding part of their jobs um, and it's also um, you mentioned team I think it is important that the whole team get involved not only because Everybody in the functional team have their own different skills that they bring, whether they're vets, nurses, front of house people or whatever. But then also as a kind of a cross matrix, you've got people's personal styles. Mm. Um, So you will have some people who are great at spotting the opportunities, but not terribly good at following through. You'll have somebody else who who may not be desperately visionary, but then will will really grasp the, um, the precision required to evaluate, to follow up, to be that dogged terrier in the business and to make something happen. And I think all of those skills need to be really well respected. And that's true for not just for a QI project, but for any, any project you run in a business. But it's perhaps a good example of where you can bring all of those different personality types and skills to bear. And that, you know, somebody who's working on reception may well be much better suited to spotting that golden opportunity to to progress and change something than your most senior partner in the business. So there's lots of different opportunities for people with different personalities and uh, across the team to play a part in QI. But in practice, everyone is running a, a busy professional life and a busy practice. How can people go about fitting QI into their day to day practice? I think that's a really good question and I think if you've not been used to doing it it can seem as an onerous additional task um, so perhaps the, the way of looking at it the other way around is to say what, what would good look like for us what would improvement look like and what would it mean and often it might mean um, a simplification of a process or actually making something easier that would lead to a better outcome um, I think it's wrong to say that quality improvement is always a gold plating of the system mm. um, and actually from a regulatory point of view that would be an own goal because we want veterinary practice to continue to be as accessible as possible to a broader range of of people so if you could think about the areas in your day-to-day work that you struggle with and what good look might look like you then might find the energy and resources to to make it worth 
worthwhile to, to pursue that. Um, and I think in terms of where to start, there's some amazing resources available through ICVS Knowledge. We've got some guidance um, as part of our Code of Professional Conduct specifically for um, clinical governance, which is part of the sort of system, if you like. Um, well, sometimes it comes down to what's that personal thing that makes you want to change um, you know all of the research and data in the world isn't the thing that changes people's behaviour if research changed people's behaviour then nobody would smoke for example <laughs> what changes people's behaviour is is anecdote is seeing it in action is swapping stories is having champions and all these sorts of things so maybe a good place to start isn't to think about what happens in your practice but to think about what happens in your home when did you last change something buy something new do something differently change your routine and why did you do it and what was the impact of it and if you can remember how useful that was even though it might have been a chore to do it then can translate that kind of um, energy and goodwill into saying okay I could do this in practice perhaps in a slightly more formal way using some of the tools that are available Um, and then kind of plunge into that cycle of of planning doing and reflecting and I think one of the the great things about the QI process is because it is cyclical you don't have to wait until you've got the perfect plan before you start Um, sometimes the perfect is the enemy of the good is that the right expression Um, now obviously you need when you've got animals in the mix you need to make a really sensible um, risk analysis to make sure you're not going to do anything which is going to cause a problem sure totally get that but then just start and bring people with you start trying if you fail then that's you know then you've learned something and you can move on and again as long as um, you're not trying anything which is going to have a negative impact on animal health and welfare then you can start that process why not start with something within the business which is non-clinical um, you know something that relates to the people um, what good might look like for your organisation might be people being able to get home on time there might be something that you can do there in terms of um, improving the process we had a really good example here at work. Um, so last year, our staff away day, before, before the staff away day, we, we um, had a, a lecturer come to talk to us who's um, a professor in psychology about nudge theory. Um, and he outlined for us all of the processes involved in nudge theory. We then got various questions within the organisation that we wanted to challenge, little problems that we had, and we set teams away to come up with examples. And there were some really um, simple things, like encouraging people to use their car to get in and out of the building, which they weren't doing, which meant we didn't have a complete list for fire regulations. And little things like that we started on, and with great enthusiasm, and actually had some really good changes. So it doesn't have to be going straight into something that, that might be life or death for your, for, your, um, for your patients. It can be just trialling the process in a more... Um, a controlled environment. So it's kind of an iterative process and perhaps sounds like it will be less daunting once you yeah. get into that way of thinking. And, yeah. and, and Otherwise I think you can run that risk. Um, I don't know whether it was just me, but when you're doing your revision timetables <laughs> and you have a beautifully structured coloured timetable but never actually get on to doing any revision and I think that people can worry that the, the QI process, we talk a lot about the process, that there's this great daunting thing but actually it's it's a relatively kind of um, sensible approach that you would take to most things in life mm-hmm. which is well, plan what you want to do, do it, review whether it works, make some changes and keep on going until you, until you get it right. And that kind of sense of continual improvement has to be there. And that approach is quite broad, as I understand it. There's obviously all manner of different specialisms, different types of practice set up, small independents and uh, much larger um, corporates. But QI is, is relevant to all with the potential and building in the potential psychologically for modifications, I suppose, to, to customise approaches to your own practice. Yeah, that's my understanding. I mean, I have to say I'm no expert on the fine details of all the different approaches and there's been a huge amount of research, um, particularly in the human medical sector, also in aviation and others. So I think it's about choosing an approach which, which suits you um, and having the right factors 
um, in the mix which are kind of meeting what it is that you want to change I think for me the most important thing is having the right culture in place mm. you know whether you follow a process that's agreed with by 10 academics or one that you know you've cooked up in house as long as you make sure that you know what you're doing why you're doing it and you'll know when you've got there um, I don't think it necessarily matters now I might well be being shouted at at this point by all sorts of people who are academics in this field who know so much more about it than I do um, but I think often the difficult thing is having the will mm. once you've got the will the way will follow um, and you will find a way that, that suits your business um, whether it's you know as I say a very formal um, academic route or not and if you're looking for a way then that, you know that's where the, the fantastic toolkits that knowledge um, producers can come in which will take you gently through that process and, and, and hold your hand every step of the way. So if culture change is the key, um, who holds that key? Is it people at the top? What form of, of, of leadership, what kind of form does that take? I think um, I think it's it's both top and bottom. So I think that, you know that they sometimes putting on the agenda comes from the top. Um, sometimes it might come from an external source, and mm. sometimes it might come from something having gone wrong, mm. or somebody going to a conference, or listening to a podcast, or reading a document, and just coming in one day saying, "Do you know what? I think we need to look at this." Um, so sometimes there's a light bulb moment. Um, you know, I think it, it would be different in different environments and depending on the kind of structure that you have. And I suspect a lot of practices doing this anyway. Um, you know, nobody will be not wanting to improve and change um, the way they do things. And, and vets in particular and veterinary nurses are very keen on developing their clinical skills. So it's all part of that thirst for, for knowledge and improvement. So I think it really comes can come from all people within the organisation, but there has to be a sense from the top that this is permitted mm. and there has to be a willingness from everybody in the team to, to support it. And is there a question around uh, sustaining that, that will? Obviously, there's, there's often a desire to, to try something new, and, um, and this isn't necessarily a bad thing. People are drawn by the novelty in, in some instances. But then how to, how to maintain and, and, and sustain that, that desire to evaluate constantly and adapt? I think that can be a real challenge and I would be hypocritical if I was sitting here from the RCBS saying it's not a challenge for us to continue to do that as well. You very quickly get sucked into doing the day-to-day and you've got 101 people asking you for things and um, key performance indicators to meet and deadlines and all of that stuff. So yes, that is challenging. I mean, I think it's part of having a structured plan and making sure that you've got money and resources allocated to it or if not those things, at least there's um, a regular thing in your your monthly meetings to make sure that you're you're looking at that an agenda item um, but also a way of kind of keeping the energy going I think is to then focus on who has been affected by the change mm. and to get them to talk to you um, so if you know if it's um, something that's affecting clinical outcomes have a look at one of the positive stories and you know get one of your clients to come and talk to your staff and um, have a look at um, you know what, what what actual impact it's had on on your teams and, and talk talk about that and that also helps people to talk about things when they're not going so well as well. So you start to develop that culture of exchange of, of views around, you know, what could be better. Um, I also think it's okay to just have a little rest sometimes too. You know, you can get overwhelmed with new initiatives. Yes. So I think it's better to do a few things and do them really well than try and change everything overnight. Um, people's energy levels need to be maintained and their well-being needs to be supported as well. So, you know, pick your battles. Um, quick wins, yes, fine, but... You know, um, make sure that you you are not overwhelming your team with with the need to do huge amounts of extra projects on top of the day to day. Otherwise, you you will probably lose that goodwill. Absolutely. So more broadly, I suppose, and I, uh, we we've covered some of this in in passing. But to summarise, why does the RCVS support a drive to adopt QI? 
Um, I think our role um, is setting up, holding and advancing standards. So I think this fits squarely in, in the advancing standards bit, which is looking at how we can continue to progress. There is a limit to what we can put into things like the code of conduct in terms of being um, uh, developing standards because we need to make sure that that is something that everybody can meet. Mm. If it's not somebody that every, something that everybody can do, then we have a problem in terms of of actually regulating that and raising expectations. Um, but I think one of the real benefits of us being a Royal College that also regulates is that we have that capacity to do a little bit more. Um, so the advancing standards are currently we do through our practice standards scheme, which is largely about quality improvement, things like our fellowship, which is about excellence in research and other academic areas um, and the profession more broadly. Things like our um, status around advanced practitioner status and specialist status, mental health, innovation, all of those things are broadly about improvement. Um, now, they're not necessarily in a, in a formal quality improvement process way. So we were really delighted when Knowledge, um, our partner charity, wanted to pick up that particular baton um, and to really look in detail at, at tools and skills that they could help the profession develop to support that much more process-driven quality improvement. Um, it fits with a culture change that we're trying to embed around turning the profession from being about a blame culture into more of a learning culture. It fits with some of the reflective practice skills that we're looking at through graduate outcomes, through our mental health projects, with things like our Schwartz Round. So it's a really good partner um, in terms of some of the work we're doing on the college side. And it's a part about that kind of journey towards being a more proactive regulator that's there to support vets, nurses and other members of the team to be the best they can be rather than waiting until something goes wrong and, and walloping them, which is not in the interests of animal health, welfare, public health, vets, nurses, Uncle Tom Cobbley. I mean, nobody benefits from that. Um, so we're trying to move further along that more proactive regulation approach and I think this fits squarely with that we do have to be careful that we're not um, setting up expectations as I said that we'd be gold plating things or that people have to continue to, to strive to change um, when change is not necessary so this needs to be part of a considered approach but really I think when you think about the benefits that um, an improvement approach can bring then it, it's a bit of a no-brainer as to supporting that so Apart from the RCVS and uh, RCVS knowledge and the, the, the veterinary professionals themselves and, and the wider team, who else can help practitioners incorporate quality improvement in their day-to-day -day activities? Is there a role for, for other parties in, in the profession? Yeah, I mean, I think the, um, the, the veterinary profession is blessed with a plethora of um, associations and organisations to support um, its members, vets and veterinary nurses. So I think there's a role that many of those organisations can play, perhaps on a species-specific way or with, um, you know, through specialists or emergency care, some of those specific areas. And a lot of them sit on our practice standards uh, working groups, so they're able to feed into that practice standards scheme through that to make sure that our standards are continuing to be pushed forward and enriched. So I think that's a key area. Um, the Veterinary Defence Society, as the, the principal um, professional indemnity insurer, also has a um, vet safe tool which is um, uh, about trying to gather data around when things have gone wrong. So there's a, a key role that they're playing there in terms of um, trying to, to gather the, the data that's needed to analyse things at a more professional-wide level rather than individually. I think we're now moving to a situation where, depending on which research you look at, between 40 and 50% of vets and nurses are employed by large corporate groups and charities. So I think there's a, a key role for them to play in terms of setting some really good progressive standards and also showing what, what success might look like both within their own groups and elsewhere. Um, you know, I think the access to data, again, that, that they have is something that you know, it would be nice to see them being prepared to share um, more broadly than just within their own organisations for the kind of benefit of the profession at large. 
So finally, what would you say to veterinary professionals out there who are thinking about starting to adopt a QI approach? I think a really good way of thinking about this um, is to maybe just for a minute step back from the veterinary environment. Because I think sometimes some of the barriers sit there in your workplace and it may be about time or resources or the fear of speaking up if you feel that perhaps there's a hierarchy thing there um, or just not having the kind of the ability to, to say what you think. So just try and put yourself in the quality improvement mindset so that it becomes such a, a key part of the way you think that it becomes much easier to discuss it in the workplace. So, for example, challenge yourself. When you're walking to work or driving to work, look around you and think about something that might have changed since last time you did that route. Maybe it's a new improved product. Maybe it's a change in the way they've done the the traffic light system. Maybe it's a new way that Sainsbury's have of putting the tomatoes in a cardboard box instead of a plastic box. And have a think about all those little changes that you encounter every day which mostly make your life easier. Sometimes they don't, and sometimes change can be difficult. And think about what kind of thought process led to that change, and that somebody somewhere in a massive organisation has triggered that change. It could be somebody on the shop floor, it could be the chief executive, who knows. Um, And that could be you, that could be you that triggers that little change that is making somebody's life better some animal's life better, um, you know, helping a client, even if it's just something relatively small, um, that could be you that they're thinking about when they walk home from, from their own workplace. Lizzie, thank you so much for sharing your time and your insights with us today. For free courses, examples and templates for quality improvement in your practice, please visit our quality improvement pages on our website at rcvsknowledge.org.